armored side stick. Move fast and clear those murder holes. Want to see plenty of beef between men. Five men is a juicy opportunity. One man's a waste of ammo. Get the sand out of your weapons. Keep those actions clear. We'll see you on the beach. Tankbuster, sir, P-51s. Angels on our shoulders. What, sir? James. Earn this. sense of joy that I write to inform you your son, Private James Ryan, is well and at this very moment on his way home from European battlefields. Reports from the front indicate James did his duty in combat with great courage and steadfast dedication, even after he was informed of the tragic loss your family has suffered in this great campaign to rid the world of tyranny and oppression. I take great pleasure in joining the Secretary of War, the men and women of the United States Army, and the citizens of a grateful nation in wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side. Nothing, not even the safe return of a beloved son, can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have suffered great loss in this tragic war. And I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln, Yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General Chief of Staff.
my family is with me today. They wanted to come with me. To be honest with you, I, I wasn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller. All right, I know I show that a lot and I talk about it a lot. I just find it to be the best um, image and visual, if you will, for um, trying to break open the mass. So we, I show the beginning and the ending of that because um, everything in between is just um, um, a flashback. So the whole movie is a flashback. In, in reality, this event takes place, you know, in real time in like 10 minutes. He walks into the cemetery. He falls to the grave of the man who saved his life. Um, his wife comes up. He asks, anybody hear the question he asked her? Or the statement, rather, he makes to her? Tell me I've led a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. She says, you are, and that's it. And then there's two and a half hours in between. The two and a half hours in between are a flashback 
Because as he's standing there at the grave, everything comes to mind again of what it is that happened when he sees the grave of the man who saved him, right? Does that make sense? Okay. The mass is more powerful than that. That's the point. Because the mass is not a flashback. The mass the church would teach is actually, sacramentally speaking, which we'll explain sometime later, huh? Um, it's the representation of that cross. And so, whereas this man goes to Normandy and in his mind, in his memory, he plays out the events, when you and I come to Mass, we're actually there somehow. That's what we would teach. And it stems from what it is that our Jewish brothers and sisters believe with regards to an event as well. So, what I want to try to do is I want to take a quick look at why it is that we think this way, all right, through the lens of Scripture, and then walk us through a couple of things from the Catechism, and then we'll take some questions and we can be on our way, all right? So, <clears throat> pull out your Bibles in the pews if you don't have yours. So, the, here, here's one way to, of thinking of Scripture. So, here's, here's the Old Testament right here, all right? And this is the new, right here. So this entire, the entirety of the Old Testament, we could say, has an event which is at the center of it. So everything in the Old Testament is either um, anticipating in some fashion or describing in some fashion or looking back at and recalling in some fashion, an event. The event is what's known as the Passover or the Exodus. The Exodus would be probably better to say it, which you find in Exodus chapter 12. So if you're still finding your way through the Bible, and some of us are, and that's fine, it's uh, the very beginning. It's the second book of the Bible. So Genesis is first and then Exodus. So if you look at Exodus 12 and you flip to verse 14, this is what the, God says to Moses. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord, and throughout your generations you shall observe it as an ordinance forever. So this all centers around um, the situation that the Jewish people find themselves in. So the Jewish people find themselves in Egypt. They're not there on vacation. They're there because they've been sold into slavery. So they moved into Egypt some years before, some 400-plus years before. But as time has gone on, they have been oppressed. And by the time that this event is happening in Exodus chapter 12, they're now the slaves of Pharaoh. So they have, uh, you could say, no life. Just think for a moment at the situation that our country finds itself in right now as we try to heal from racism. And the trauma that our country is in right now, still, because of what it was that happened in a particular way in those years from the 18th and 19th century, but has continued to linger on even until this day, right? This, the scars, the wounds, the memories, the hostility of either oppressing or being oppressed 
is still very fresh to us, right? I say that simply not to, um, I don't want to get lost in that in any way, and I don't want to diminish that in any way. But imagine the psyche of the Israelites, because the Israelites had been in slavery. They'd been in Egypt for 400 plus years. They haven't been slaves that entire time by any means, but they've been slaves for a long time. And so they know oppression firsthand. They know belittlement. They're living tools. That's what they are. That's what a slave is. They have no life. They have no rights. They have no dignity. They have no hope. They have no future. They have nothing. And in the midst of this situation, God says to the people, I am going to do something to rescue you. That's the exodus. Exodus just means the going out, okay? That's the center of the Old Testament. So it's the deliverance of a people who had been in slavery, freeing them and bringing them into a new land where all of a sudden they have a hope, they have a future, they have a life, they have freedom. At the center of this event is a meal. The meal is known as the Passover. And so that's where in Exodus 12 here, that's what the Lord's talking about. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. So in other words, it's something that is commemorating an event that's about to happen, because it hasn't happened yet. This is the night before. And yet the Lord gives instructions even that night that the Israelite people are to continually celebrate this over and over and over again. If you're still with me in Scripture, flip to the next chapter. It's Exodus chapter 13, verse 8. You shall tell your son. So this is the Lord giving instructions on how to celebrate this feast. And at one point he says, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So now we might think that that just means that the immediate descendants or the immediate people who saw the exodus take place, the deliverance from the tyranny of the king of Egypt and the dramatic rescue was something that only the people who actually saw it were supposed to say, but that's actually not the case. So the, the Jewish people have um, a series of writings from um, antiquity, which would be the collection of their traditions. The oldest collection of the writings that we have is what's known as the Mishnah. The Mishnah is uh, dated from, say, 50 BC to about 200 AD. And in the Mishnah, it says this about describing the Exodus and how we celebrate the Passover. In every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. For it is written, and then it quotes this verse that we just saw, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Therefore, we are bound to give thanks and to bless him who wrought all these wonders for our fathers and for us. He brought us out from bondage to freedom, not them, us. This is several thousand years, or at least 1,500 years after the Exodus when this is being written. He brought us out from bondage to freedom, from sorrow to gladness, and from mourning to a festival day. 
and from darkness to great light, and from servitude to redemption. And so let us say before him the hallelujah. And then someone writing about this says, in other words, ancient Jewish celebrants did not just remember the Exodus, they actively participated in it. From their perspective, no matter how much time had passed since the days of Moses, the salvation won in the Exodus was not just for our fathers, but for us. And the chief way of both remembering and of participating in the original act of, ex of redemption was by keeping the Passover itself. So, center of the Old Testament has an event. The event has connected with it a meal. The meal has instructions for it which are given by God through Moses to the people which they are perpetually to celebrate. And somehow, the Jewish brothers and sisters, even to this day, the Orthodox Jews, would say that when they celebrate the Passover, they themselves are going out of Egypt. So everything in the Jewish celebration hinges on the word that we translate as memorial, or the way we hear it in Mass as in memory of me, which is a really lame translation. So the Greek word is anamnesis. Psalm, keep, keep opening your Bible, keep going forward towards the back and get to Psalms. So Psalm 111, verse 4. In a translation, it says this, the Lord has established a memorial for himself, or maybe you have it written, he has caused his wonderful works to be remembered. But, but that's again, that, that ain't what it says. He, in other words, God himself set up this ritual to be celebrated, and at the heart of it is this word anamnesis, or what we translate as memorial. The key thing about this word is that it doesn't just mean to call something to mind in my head, the way Private Ryan did when he was standing at the grave. It means that somehow, when it's celebrated, it, it brings us there, or it brings the event to us. Does this make sense? You with me? Okay. I'm not asking you to accept it yet. I'm just telling you what our Jewish brothers and sisters would believe. Because that's exactly what we believe. Because we're all, the church would say we're all spiritually Jewish. We've been grafted onto the Jewish people as Christians. That's why we don't discard the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament can only be read fully by understanding Jesus. It helps us to understand who Jesus is because the Old Testament is about Jesus. It's pointing to him. So just as the Old Testament has at the center of it an event, and the event is a miraculous deliverance from a tyrant which enables people to go free. And the event has connected with it a meal, and the meal has instructions for it which are given by God through Moses, and the meal makes the event present. So the New Testament also has an event which is at the center of it. The event is the ultimate deliverance from a tyrant. The tyrant's not an earthly king, the tyrant is Satan, who was an angel. We'll talk about him later. So he's created good. He rebels against God. He's just a creature, but he's a remarkably powerful creature. And he hates you. He hates you. And his desire to you is that you would be kept from the end for which God made you, which is to be divinized.
because that's the end for which you were made. You and I were made to actually share in, by adoption, God's own life. So to what that could possibly mean, who knows, huh? It, it's, uh, I'm not sure how Father Dave put it last week. Faith leads us to eternal life. What's eternal life? I don't know. I just know this isn't it. <laughs> All right? It's more. The way one person put it once, it's a great, I think visually, so visuals help me, right? So it's like swimming, he says, in an ocean of boundless love. That's eternal life. Well, I can picture that. So the tyrant, huh, is the devil. The devil's desire is to kill you for all eternity. The Lord has freed us from that. He's freed us from that by an event. He didn't do it with a magic wand. He did it by doing something. And what he did was that, the cross. This event also has connected with it a meal because the night, just like the night before the Exodus takes place, God gives to Moses the instructions for how to celebrate the Passover. So the night before Jesus goes to the cross, God gives through not some prophet, but himself in the flesh, Jesus. He gives instructions on how to celebrate what we would refer to as the Last Supper or the Eucharist, which we continue to celebrate over and over and over again. This event also has at the center of it the word anamnesis or what we get translated as memorial. So when you come to Mass, you hear the priest recite the words that Jesus himself says, take this, all of you, and eat it, for this is my body, which is given up for you. Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many. For the forgiveness of sins, do this in memory of me. He doesn't mean do this and think about what I did. In the same way that Jewish people don't mean do this and think about what happened a long, long time ago. Somehow, in the same way that our Jewish brothers and sisters would believe that their present, they become contemporaries of the event of the Exodus when they celebrate the Passover, we believe when we come to Mass that we're there at the foot of the cross. Does that make sense? Yeah? That's why the beginning of that movie I find so strong. Because the reality is most people, most Catholics, as I think I said early on, one of the very first times we got together, the challenge for a lot of people coming into the church is you are considering leaving an awful lot to become Catholic, and you're going to sit into, next to people who are walking into Mass like Ryan's family walks into Arlington. They don't know who this man is. So they're just kind of looking around like, wow, this is kind of cool. Ooh, an ocean, neat, wow. Look at all the crosses, right? But he's not walking like that. He's walking going, I'm going right for that cross because that's the man that saved me. And when we walk into church, that's why our eyes are drawn to the cross. And it's why the cross is so prominent in the church because that's the man who saved me. Now, I know some of us know that already. We've, we've encountered him, but some of us haven't. That's fine. That's why we do this. We're going to take a lot of time in the weeks and months ahead to break open who Jesus is and what he's done and how we should respond. We just want to situate right now some sort of an understanding of what it is that we hold to be happening when we come to Mass. So in other words, we, we talk often, some of you perhaps have seen 
or have heard us say, um, the answer to the question, why do we exist as a parish family, is to offer every person in our community a life-changing encounter with Jesus. That's why we're here. There is no encounter with Jesus that remotely compares to coming to Mass. Because he's really here in a remarkable way. And tragically, most Catholics don't seem to know it. But when they do, then everything changes. When we come here and we realize what the cross is saying to us is we, not we, you, Kevin, matter so much that the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, would do that willingly for you, then everything changes. Until then, it's just a ritual. And because the Mass is still something that is unfamiliar to a lot of us, we just want to ground it for us right now so that we understand that it's not a mere ritual. So I don't know that you have your catechisms with you. I would doubt it. But let me show you a couple passages in a particular way. You can write these down maybe. So this is paragraph 1363, uh, 1364, and 1366. So this is what the The memorial is not merely the recollection of past events, but the proclamation of the mighty works wrought by God for men. In the liturgical celebration of these events, that is to say the Mass, they become in a certain way present and real. This is how Israel understands its liberation from Egypt. Every time Passover is celebrated, the Exodus events are made present to the memory of believers so that they may conform their lives to them. Anybody ever been to a Passover meal or a Seder meal? Anybody ever seen the Passion of the Christ? If you've never been, the beginning or early on in the celebration of the, the Passover, the youngest boy who's present there asks a question. And the question is, why is tonight different than every other night? And the man who's leading the celebration says, because once we were slaves, and we are slaves no more. So every time we walk into Mass, and especially on Sunday, which is the day that we call to mind the resurrection and celebrate the resurrection, which is the only thing that gives us hope, because we're all going to die. <laughs> we're all going to die. It's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. And to know that death has lost, it has no sting anymore. It doesn't have the victory. To know that is, is the ultimate way of being able to answer someone, why is today, why is Sunday unlike any other day? Because once we were slaves, we were slaves to death. We were held bound by the despair, the cycle, the, the, the depression, the sadness that is death. But it's been shattered. Is it real? Absolutely. Does it still happen? Absolutely. But it doesn't hold me anymore. And it doesn't hold those I love anymore. So once we were slaves, and we are slaves no more. That's why we celebrate. 
the Jewish people over and over and over again are commanded by God to call to mind the events that he has done because otherwise they will forget. And if you forget, then you lose your sense of identity and you fall prey to all the things that the world around them is held bound by. Fear, sadness, emptiness. So it's so important for us too. It's why the Lord calls us to come to celebrate the fulfillment of the Sabbath at Mass. Because the moment that I stop coming to church, the moment that I see Sunday as the end of the weekend, as opposed to the beginning of the week, I live like the world. And if I live like the world, then I fall prey again to the things that lead the world to despair. You with me? This is uh, 1364 in the Catechism. In the New Testament, the memorial takes on new meaning. When the church celebrates the Eucharist, she commemorates Christ's Passover, and, and it is made present. The sacrifice Christ offered once for all on the cross remains ever present. As often as the sacrifice of the cross by which Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed, is celebrated on the altar. The work of our redemption is carried out. The Eucharist, this is 1366, is thus a sacrifice because it represents, that is, makes present, the sacrifice of the cross. This is um, hard to grasp um, sometimes for us. But we just want to lay a foundation for us again so that we can try to ask the Lord to help us understand and to give us eyes to see what's going on when we walk here. So the sacraments, we'll, we'll spend a lot of time on this in some months. The sacraments do three things. They recall something, they make it present, and they foretell something. So every time you and I come to Mass, it recalls or makes present again the cross. So it it calls it to mind. It brings me there. Those are those first two things it does. And then it actually foretells something that is yet, yet to come, which is to say it foretells that one day we will actually be with the Lord in heaven. All three of those things take place when we come to the Mass. It recalls, it makes present, and it foretells. Which is why when we come to Mass, we're not supposed to be spectators. So when you come to Mass, it's not coming to a concert. It's not coming to a talk. It's not coming to something which is intended to entertain me. It's actually something I'm supposed to enter into. So even what we do to prepare to come into church is crucial. So when I was younger, I know, like, I just had the radio up loud as I'm driving to church, which is hardly a great place to prepare myself to encounter the God who poured out his life for me on the cross. So if I want to get more, if you will, out of Mass, what I do before I'm walking in here is really important. So to the degree that I can actually, like, have silence to the best that I can, or some sense of calm to the sense that I can, can be helpful for me, and then actually be praying as I walk into church and try to get here early, even if it's five minutes. 
just to put myself in a prayerful spot and ask the Lord, Lord, help me to know where I am right now. Help me to know that what I'm looking at, that, the crucifix, happened for me. Help me to hear what you want to say to me. Help me to encounter you right now. Help me to know your love. Help me to know your forgiveness. Help me to know your kindness. Help me to see you looking at me from the cross, saying about me to your father, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. For all my sin. Help me to hear all that, to know all that, to experience all that. As opposed to looking around, waiting for the entertainment to begin, right? So you, you can hear, um, and I've heard plenty of times, and I said plenty of times when I was younger than I am now, um, mass is boring. Well, that's because it's not supposed to be entertaining. <laughs> that's not the purpose of it. It actually is anything but boring. But it's only to the degree that I can enter into what it is that's happening and actively participate in it that I'm ever going to get to the place where I can understand it. So, does that make sense? You with me? Yeah? So, I'll give you, an, I'll give you a simple image that can be helpful. So for the reason why we do what we do at the beginning of the Mass, so who knows what we do? Who's been here at the beginning of Mass when we say something, we ask everybody to stand and to do what? Yeah, to ask for prayers. Why, do you think? So we can pray for each other, right? So we can connect with each other, yeah? So the prayer above all prayers is the prayer that Jesus offers to the Father on our behalf. That's the prayer. That prayer is actually lived out in the most dramatic fashion by his going to the cross because that didn't happen to him. That's something that he willed. You can't nail God to a cross. <laughs> you just don't have those kind of nails. The only way you can put God on a cross is if he wants to be on it. So he's willing that. That's why the cross doesn't show me... Um, it doesn't show me sin so much as it shows me love. Because the only reason the cross is taking place is because the Lord is allowing it to happen. He's willing it to happen. Why? Because he loves me and he loves the Father. So the prayer above all prayers that's ever been uttered on earth is Jesus' prayer on the cross when he makes of his life an offering to his Father for us. Okay? So that's the prayer. So in other words, we're trying to enter into that prayer when we come to Mass. And one of the ways that we try to do it here is by turning to each other and saying, what can I pray for with you at this Mass? In other words, what can I take your intentions and unite those with my intentions and unite those to Jesus' prayer to the Father, confident that this is the prayer that's most powerful? That's why we do that. And in doing it, hopefully it helps us realize we're engaged here. We're active here. 
We're not passive when we come to church. I'm not supposed to be sitting here and listening. Even if I'm not actually saying prayers out loud at a particular time, you're praying with the priest, through the priest, in bringing whatever it is that you have on your own heart and the intentions that others have asked you to pray for as well. Make sense? So a moment which is usually totally missed um, is the moment that takes place from back here at about like halftime, right, of the Mass. So the beginning of the Mass is the reading of the scriptures, and then some guy gets up there and says some things for some time, right? Then we say the creed, we do our prayers of the faithful, and then somebody walks back here with the crucifix, one of the servers, and then this procession takes place, right? And the procession is people bringing up bread and wine. Well, we, the Mass could go a lot quicker if we didn't do this. We could just have them already up there, right? But doing this is, is intentional. It's a way of bringing... It, we're all involved in this sacrifice, this offering. So we're bringing forward these gifts that we have, bread and wine, which are really modest, simple gifts. You can't make either one of them instantly. So bread and wine both involve not only us and our work, they involve the soil, they involve the seasons, they involve the heavens. So all of creation is involved in this. And we carry them forward to the Lord and we say, Lord, here we are. This is what we have to offer you. Now do something with this, we ask. And then God takes these incredibly simple, humble gifts of bread and wine, and by the power of His Spirit, He changes them and transforms them into that which is most precious, namely the body, blood, soul, and divinity of His Son, and He gives them back to us. But as the gifts are being brought forward, this is what I always try to encourage myself to do, and I encourage others too. Imagine that carry, being carried forward is not just bread and wine, but it's your life, the life of your loved ones. It's the intention of the person next to you who asked you to pray for something. And we just kind of carry them all in our arms up to the altar. And then we just place them, these persons, in our mind on the altar. So this morning at one of the masses, I was looking at a couple that I know is struggling greatly. And so as the gifts are being brought forward, in my mind, I just see the two of them being carried. And I'm asking the Lord, Lord, do what you do. And just like I'm going to pour my hands out over bread and wine, and we're going to ask your spirit to descend upon them, so I ask, Lord, that you'd send your spirit on them and change their hearts and reconcile them to each other and heal them and give them strength. And then I just leave them on the altar trust that God will do what he needs to do. Okay? That's the main thing I just want to communicate to you right now. Just a simple way to understand um, that when we come here, where we come is to the foot of the cross and we ask the Lord to overwhelm us with his love. And then we leave. We're sent actually from this place. That's why the ending of the Mass is go and announce the gospel. The gospel is simply this. You are, and every person that you'll ever meet, 
far more important than you could ever dare to imagine. Because you're worth dying for. And God wants everyone we meet to know that. That's why we're sent out. That's why someone invited you here. Or you got here somehow. Somehow you're beginning to intimate that. Okay? There is a lot more to, we could say, and we'll get into much more uh, as we go through, but that's, uh, that's all I want to share with you. What questions might you have? Blessed Sacrament is there? Yeah, mm-hmm. So inside the tabernacle right now is the remains of the consecrated hosts that we did not consume at Mass. So what we do is when we bring forward the procession, the bread and the wine, that's just bread. So we consecrate... That's the word we would use. We consecrate um, the bread and the wine at every Mass. That which is left over is placed in there, which we will then use to both distribute at Mass, but we also use so that we can come and be close to the Lord um, in His real presence in a unique way. And that's why the candle stays lit. So what's in there is not mere bread. What's back there is is mere bread. That would be a, um, no, that's a great, yeah, that would be a, a basic way to say it, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yeah, it's, it's you're fine. Yeah, so every, um, what we're doing after communion, so during communion, people come forward, they receive the Lord, or they receive the blessing. Now what we do is we take the remains of the consecrated hosts, so all the hosts that haven't been received, we, we put them in, however many vessels that we need. doesn't matter what the Latin word is for it right now. We'll tell you that later. We put them in here. Then the chalices, they're not cups, they're chalices which are used to distribute the precious blood. It's not wine, it's precious blood, um, are purified. So we don't clean them, we purify them. Because it's really the blood of Christ, hidden under the appearance of wine. And so with water, we very carefully try to purify any remnant of the precious blood, that's what we're doing at the altar. And then after that, we dry the chalices, and then we wash them afterwards. But we're purifying them up here because um, it is the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ you don't just kind of like mop up with a towel. Does that make sense? Right. We only reserve the body of Christ. We don't reserve the, the blood of Christ. Right. So anything that's left of the precious blood that's not consumed at Mass, we have to consume. And sometimes you end up consuming a lot. (laughs) And it has the accidents of wine. (laughs) Yeah. Good question. Yeah, so the question is, um, as people are coming forward to receive the Lord in in communion, 
Um, they will go back to their pews, and those who are able will kneel, right? Out of love, not out of servile fear, out of love, right? For the one who's laid down his life for us. Um, and then the question is just, when do you stop kneeling? Um, technically, it's when the tabernacle door is shut again, and the Lord is back in the in the tabernacle. Some people wait until the priest sits down. That shows actually more deference to the priest than it does to Jesus. Not a good thing. I would wait till the Lord's back in the tabernacle. I'm nothing. He's everything. Okay? But no one's going to yell at you for doing either one. Yes. So when we talk about the Exodus, it's the whole um, complex um, series of events which brings deliverance from the people of Israel out of Egypt. So there are 10 different plagues that are administered to the Egyptians, which leads the king of Egypt to kick out the Jewish people. But it doesn't culminate with uh, that night. As we're going to see as we keep going through, especially as we start talking about baptism, um, everything in Exodus is foreshadowing something that is about to happen in the Christian life. So ev even like passing through the Red Sea, which we'll talk about at some length, is a prefiguring of baptism. Okay. Yeah, the actual Passover meal has at its center of it the slaughtering of a lamb. And then the lamb's blood is wiped over the doorpost of the house where the meal is celebrated. But then it's not enough just to kill the lamb. You have to eat it. All that becomes significant when you start thinking about the Eucharist. That's why when we hold up the host at Mass, we say, Behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Lamb that was slaughtered so that you and I could go free. Jesus dies on the cross at the very hour when the lambs which are going to be used and eaten at the Passover are slaughtered in the temple. So, and we'll, we'll, we'll share much more on this. We're just trying to give snippets right now, but um, Scripture's a drama, and every great drama just foretells things that are about to happen much later. And so God's the greatest dramatist, and so all the events that, that are early on in the Scriptures, they only get fulfilled later on, and all of them, Jesus just pulls all of the Old Testament into himself. So I can't understand, in this case, what it means that we would say, behold the Lamb of God, unless I understand a whole series of things in the Old Testament, the greatest of which would be um, the Lamb that's slain at Passover. Does that help? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Go ahead, ask on his behalf. 
Why do we do the sign of peace? Uh, um, why would you think? <laughs> the first time anybody comes to Mass, they have to tell you what to do. Because <laughs> the Mass is not intuitive. That's why we want to try to explain something. So, so uh, the sign of peace is what, what you and I are about to do right after the sign of peace. Although the sign of peace, depending upon which... Um, you don't need to worry about what this means right now, but there are different ways of celebrating the Mass depending upon what culture you come from. So the way we would say that in the church is there are different rites, R-I-T-E. In some rites, in some celebrations of the liturgy, the exchange of peace is in a different place. It's actually before the gifts are brought forward. So mainly because Jesus says in the Gospels, um, if you're bringing your gift to the altar... And there you remember on the way that you have something against your brother. First, go and make peace with your brother. Then bring your gift to the altar. So it, it moves in different places, okay? But we do it um, right before the, uh, or right after the, um, our father, huh? So the reason for that is um, we want to um, make sure that as we come forward to receive the Lord, that we do so with hearts that are actually reconciled with people around us. So we, we turn the sign of peace into kind of like a, um, a community event. Hey, how you doing? Peace, peace, peace. What we should be doing is actually heading for the person in the pews that we're not at peace with. So you walk into church and you see somebody that you know you're at odds with, that's who you should be going to. That might make that part of Mass a lot longer, <laughs> and it might take a lot more time because there might be a lot of people i got to make peace with. Um, but the Lord isn't kidding. Remember the Gospel last week when he talks about forgiveness and how important it is to forgive, that if I don't forgive, I won't be forgiven? So I can't possibly come forward to receive Jesus in the Eucharist if I'm not at peace with the people that I'm sitting here with. It would be an outrage and a lie. Because Jesus from the cross is crying out, Father, forgive them. And then he's going to give me that, and that's what's going to... I'm going to get a transfusion of his blood into my heart. So if his blood's crying out, Father, forgive, my heart can't be sitting there going... Ugh. Okay? We all got the mask down, right? Yeah, Robert? Yeah, so I mentioned again last week, but I'll say it again. So during the time of communion, it, there, you'll see people come forward with their hands crossed like this. Um, so I, again, I said last week, um, I would not encourage you to be sitting when we're giving out communion. I'd encourage you to come forward because I want you to get as close to the Eucharist as possible because God wants to create a desire in you to receive him. And so coming close is helpful for that. But you receive a, a blessing just because, um, as we explained last week, the Eucharist isn't a gesture of hospitality. The Eucharist is um, a physical way of saying with my body um, everything these people believe, I believe, and I'm in grace. And if you're not in grace, you shouldn't receive. Flip to 1 Corinthians 11. New Testament. I don't have the Bible you have, um, so if you've got a page, throw it out. And we got 1 Corinthians 11. What is it? 1283. So flip down to verse uh, 23. 
So 1 Corinthians 11.23. This is the oldest account of the, what we would call the institution of the Eucharist because Paul's letters are older than the Gospels. So Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, or broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's that word, huh? In the same way, also the chalice after supper, saying, This chalice is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the chalice, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here comes this next little passage. This is why not only um, those who aren't Catholic, but Catholics who... Um, are in need of confession, that is to say they're aware of serious sin, um, don't receive. They come forward. So you see, you see lots of people here come forward with their arms crossed. And it's none of your business and it's none of my business why they're coming forward with their arms crossed. Actually, it is my business, but that, that's a different story. <laughs> it's exactly my business. Um, so listen to these words. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, that is, without discerning what it is I'm doing, who it is I'm encountering, putting into myself, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. <laughs> That's a real pick-me-up. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So, in my own life, I can't probably even name or count, rather, how many times I've received the Eucharist unworthily, but it was many, trust me. And the Lord in his kindness is trying to remind us, if you are not right with me, don't come forward to receive. Come forward to get a blessing because I don't want to eat and drink judgment on myself. And I certainly don't want to eat and drink condemnation on myself and I'm sick enough and I don't want to get sicker, <laughs> okay? So the Eucharist isn't just, again, some ordinary thing that we come forward to. It's the Lord himself who's standing here wanting to give himself to us. And sometimes we all know that the right response would just be to go, I don't think I should be receiving you right now, Lord. Not until I can sit down with you and ask for your forgiveness. And thanks be to God, he loves to forgive and he's generous and forgiving. So I don't have to worry about that. Okay? Yeah. Don't receive because you can't say everything these people here believe and I'm visibly one with them.
Oh, great question. So here's what I would tell you. So those of you who are, so, um, so RCIA is, or becoming Catholic as we call it, because nobody knows what in the world RCIA means, um, is it, uh, primarily intended for those who are not baptized. Those who are baptized, so remember with that first night when we went around the room, or the second week, we went around the room, there's a diversity of people who are here. We're all in different spots, right? Some of us have been walking with the Lord for a long time, we're just not Catholic. Others of us have no idea how to spell Lord, which is fine, that's why we do this. But if you're already baptized, and you get to a point where you say to me, I have no more objections to anything that the church teaches. And I think I can say out loud in front of everybody, I accept and believe as true all that the church teaches and professes to be revealed by God. Then I'll bring you into the church now. And we would go to confession and you could come to communion. I have to ask permission from the archbishop to do that, but we do that a lot. Because what happens, for, for some of us, um, it happens every year. The desire for Jesus just becomes overwhelming, and I don't want to wait. So I'll continue to come to becoming Catholic because I want to continue to learn, but I don't want to wait anymore. Like, I, have a, I feel compelled to repent in a way that I can receive his mercy in, in confession, and I feel compelled to receive him in the Eucharist, and I'm, I'm there right now. And if you tell me, I would, I, I would say, because Easter's early this year, if it's February, I'll still tell you to wait, because we're almost to Easter. But if it's November or December, then we won't wait, because I want you to get Jesus, and Jesus wants to give himself to you, okay? They got a line score? It was, what was it? 2320. Wow, they came back. Great. All right, see, God's good. <laughs> see what happens when you give them your time? <laughs> it was 17 to 3, so that's good news. All right, anything else? This is such a flyby in the Mass, right? But again, the purpose of these last two weeks has just been to try to help us to kind of be a little bit at ease when we come into church so that we can feel more at home. And then as questions continue to arise, just keep asking them. So we're always going to try to give time. Um, certainly this Thursday, I'll give lots of time for questions. And uh, we get that question box at the back that Bob's got, or just the blank pieces of paper as we walk in on um, Thursday nights. Just write down things. If whatever it is that comes to mind, please feel free. Let me put uh, just a quick word. There's, if, if you want to know more about... Um, and we'll, we'll do a lot on this when we get to the, actually talking about the Eucharist. But even for right now, if you're looking for what I think is the best book, it's small too, it's pretty easy to, to digest, on how um, the Mass is all foreshadowed, especially the Eucharist is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. There's a book, guy, book by a guy named Brant Petrie, P-I-T-R-E, called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, which is outstanding. There's also a podcast that you can listen to online, probably pretty easily found, same name, it's about 30 minutes maybe. So uh, if you're looking for a great talk to just kind of break open 
what's going on at Mass, um, this would be a great thing to dive into. All right.